So we will be reading from Romans chapter 12, just verses 1 through 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. If I don't know you and haven't met you, my name's Char. I am one of the elders here and the teaching pastor. Um, how many of you guys are still eating leftovers? Yeah, me too. Yeah, last night was the last time, though. I swore them off. Man, Thanksgiving food just does not sit well with me. I must be a European, really. Must be what it is. Um, so if it's your first time joining us, Welcome. Um, and this year has been, uh, it's been referenced a few times this morning, but uh, we call it Yobel, Year of Biblical Literacy. Um, we're not yodel, you know, like yodeling and practicing that. It's Yobel. Um, what that means for us is that we have dedicated this year to reading the Bible together. And uh, we've done that because many of you had never read the Bible before all the way through. And so this is so important for us as Christians to know God's word firsthand, to know what it teaches um, and not just to receive information, but to experience transformation, to, be, uh, to see and understand God's story, but in order that our story might continue to tell the story of God. Um, and so along with that, on Sunday mornings, we have been teaching through uh, large portions of the Bible and different themes um, and characters. Now, this morning, we are in our last series of the year um, and we're in part two of the moral vision of the New Testament. So uh, when you think about that phrase, the moral vision of the New Testament, maybe you think about the Bible and especially the commands written in the Bible. We often think of it in those terms. We think of it in terms of morals or commands, a list of do's and don'ts. It's a religious rule book. Um, at the beginning of the year, though, we discussed that the Bible is actually very unique when it comes to other religions. There's this story of, um, I'm blinking on his name right now, Leslie Newbegin. It's a story of, he was a missionary in India. And as he was sharing the gospel and, and gave a Bible to one of his Hindi, uh, Hindi friends, uh, what happened is the man came back and he said, I have read religious books before. Your Bible is not a religious book. It is a historical book. It's a story. And he was fascinated by this fact that it isn't in, in, in typical fashion of a religious book, but it is in fact a story, a story told by God, God's view of the world, uh, how the world came into being, what is wrong with the world, because we all know that something is desperately wrong with the world. And it's a story about how God has done something to fix it, how God has done something to redeem the world and to make all things new, and how he has done this specifically through his king and rescuer, Jesus Christ. So the moral vision of the New Testament, when we think about even that term, it's not necessarily about rules and do's and don'ts. It's about how we now live in light of that story. How we live in a way that is consistent with the story, or more specifically, how our lives continue to tell the story of God. How my life, how your life, write the next chapters of the story of God. That is an exciting adventure that God invites all people to share in. Now, if the story of God in the world has found its climax... And Jesus Christ is what we talked about last week. In his life, death, and resurrection, and ascension, then how are we supposed to live? This is really the question driving the final series, the moral vision of the New Testament. And we saw last week how this was Paul the Apostle's two main objectives. He wanted to bring all people into the story. He wanted to go everywhere and tell people the good news that God is king again. 
And he has become king through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted to include all people in what God had done. And then he wanted to conform people, not just to a, a, a stereotype. He did not want just uniformity, but Paul wanted Every culture, every tribe, every tongue, every language, he even says in his letters, male, female, Jew, Gentile, slave, free, people from all walks of life coming under the true king of the world. That's what Paul wanted to see. That was his objective. Now, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is really all about this. It's all about calibrating your life according to the mercy of God rather than the perspective, goals, drive, and motivations of this culture or of this cultural moment. So Paul tells us that in a sheer act of God's mercy, we have been invited to be members of his family, recipients of his kingdom, as we said, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And Paul calls us to live a life calibrated by thankfulness to God's great goodness. Paul says to present yourselves as a living sacrifice. Now, this sounds like an oxymoron or a paradox. Anybody familiar with sacrifice? When was the last time you did sacrifice in this room? Anybody? Like actual, like break the neck, slit the throat, spill out the blood, get the fatty parts, put them on the altar. Nobody? Isn't that what you did with your turkey this weekend? Right? See, we are so unfamiliar with this idea of sacrifice, but in these times, what would happen with a sacrifice, and specifically the sacrifice that Paul is talking about here, is it would be burned up completely. And so it really does sound like an oxymoron here. Uh, Paul's talking about a living sacrifice, a living thing that has been burned and destroyed completely. How does that work? It seems that Paul's idea is that since, through Jesus Christ, we have died to our old ways of being, of thinking, of living, what Paul calls the sinful way or the flesh, since we have died to that old way, we are now to live according to the new way. Said we have died with Christ, but we have simultaneously been raised with him. So we are to live in the way of Jesus, the Messiah. We were once, he puts it this way in another place, we were once slaves to sin, but we died. And now we are alive to God and therefore slaves of God and slaves of righteousness. Now, I believe that this teaching, what Paul is saying here, is so vital to the church, especially at this moment in history. The contemporary church has in many ways adopted a doctrine and posture of free grace. Free grace? Isn't grace, isn't that the whole point? Grace is free. Well, actually, that's something Paul absolutely refutes in his letter to the Romans. He says this, should we sin that grace may abound? The idea is, should we just go on living the the normal way that we've always been living? Should we just continue in this lifestyle? Absolutely not, is Paul's answer. We have died to that old way, and we have been raised to new life. But in our contemporary culture, we have thought that following Jesus simply means receiving forgiveness of sin, adding some Jesus, maybe Jesus seasoning to our lives, but really has nothing to do with our personal lives being transformed, has nothing to do with personal sacrifice, death to self, and discipline to the way of Jesus. We have come to fit Jesus in quite nicely to our culture's life of self-satisfaction, comfort, and the relentless pursuit of individual happiness and freedom. Many of the churches that you go to, that is the message that you will hear. Your best life now. Just you do you. God just wants you to be the best you can possibly be. But that's not the story of the gospel. The the story of the gospel is, actually, God rescues me from myself, redeems me so that I can be who he created me to be. I can be a whole human being, because apart from him, I will never achieve that. I will never achieve human wholeness, because he's the creator. He's the author of life. He's the one who has mapped out 
this universe and how it works. And only as I subject my life to him do I find the map, do I find the, 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 the real and true way to be human. Because of this posture of the coach, oh, excuse me, it was because of the coach, what is that? It's, I just made that up. That's just slang for culture. I don't tweet it, whatever, you know, go ahead. Give credit where credit's due. Uh, Because of this posture of the church with culture, many of our churches bear more the image of the world around them than the image of Jesus Christ. Unfortunately, the other side, right, just, we just go to the other extreme, and we, and we think that the Christian life then is just about being dead to sin or just certain sin, about just pulling out of the world and living a monastic existence. And I know for many of you, when we talk, you know, we use the word holiness or we talk about being dead to sin, it's just like boring, right? Like I did that in youth group. I did that in the church that I grew up with. Oh, please, Christianity is not just about being dead to sin. It is about being alive to God. It is a human being on fire. That's what it is. It is life filled up, life in all of its fullness. This is what John the Apostle said that Jesus came to bring, life and that more abundantly, life overflowing. I think what we see in the church is very similar to what Jesus says in his parable about the demoniac. Anybody familiar with that parable? Jesus talks about that there was once this demon-possessed man, and he is somehow cleansed of his demons. There was some spiritual oppression in his life, and somehow he gets cleansing and gets healing from that. But what happens is the person does not fill themselves with anything in place of that spiritual um, presence or oppression. And so he says what happens is the demon leaves, and then the demon comes back, and what does it find? It finds the house, the person, swept, clean, everything set. The house looks beautiful and perfect, but uninhabited. And so it takes up residence once again and invites more demons. And so now the condition of this person is worse than the beginning. And you know what? I think that this is actually a parable of what we often do with Christianity, we only go to the, 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 the edge, but we don't enter into all the things that God has for us. We receive cleansing, we receive healing, but we don't enter into this work of transformation. We don't co-labor with God, but that is the invitation from Paul here. Listen to this from Alistair Roberts and Andrew Wilson's Echoes of Exodus. They say, escaping from Egypt, right? That's a story of Israel way, way back when. Escaping from Egypt is only half of the Exodus story. And it's easy, as, easy for us to forget this in an age where freedom is understood as merely being freed from oppression, from constraint, or whatever. This aspect of liberation, as wonderful as it is, is only half of the deal. In the scriptures, more emphasis is placed on the freedom for, freedom for worship, Freedom for flourishing, freedom for growth in obedience and joy and glory. Human beings are not designed to be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but our own passions, triumphantly enthroned as our own masters, even our own gods. You guys, that is the American dream. That's it right there. Be free from all constraint, slaves to nothing but your own passion, triumphantly enthroned as your own master or even your own God. I mean, I don't think that's originally what it was meant to be, but that's what it's become. Listen to what he says. Everybody serves somebody. So the point of the Exodus is not just for Israel or for us to find deliverance from serving the old master. It is for us to find delight in serving the new one. What Paul is getting at here in Romans 12, 1 through 2, is that what you give your allegiance to, what you worship, will affect every area of your life. And Paul wants these Christians and us to experience the freedom of the new life in Jesus Christ. He wants us to live out that moral vision of what God has done for the world. So in view of God's mercy is how Paul starts 
right? So there's one command that Paul gives in light of the mercy of God, which is shorthand, Paul's shorthand for the gospel. There's one goal. It's to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, and it has two aspects, be dead to sin and alive to God. So first, let's talk about this idea of God's mercy or in view of God's mercy. As I was saying last week, the good news is that God is king. God has retaken his rightful place as king of the world, and he has also, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son, removed the barrier that barred humanity from being a part of and partaking in his kingdom. It was the barrier of sin, the barrier of human rebellion and evil and brokenness. And this is what Paul has been laying out in Romans chapters 1 through 11, what God has done. Paul saw that what God did in and through Jesus, we talked about this last week, as the climax of the story of the world. It was the defeat of sin, evil, and death at the cross, the resurrection from the dead, the ascension of the Son of Man to the presence uh, or the right hand of God, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, God's presence here on earth with individual people, the gathering together of the people of God in one family, the church, and the breaking in of the new age and the rule of God's kingdom. So Paul then, in light of all of that, right, and I know that's a lot, Paul appeals to these Roman Christians. Stop right there. Paul appeals to Christians, not pagans, not non-Christians. These people who are following Jesus, these people who have believed in the gospel, Paul says to them and to us, present your body. Present your body to God. Now, many times in the church, we have practiced a kind of dualism. God doesn't care about your body. You want to do spiritual work? You give the church your money, and the church will do spiritual work for you. That is your spiritual act of worship. No, Paul says, give your body. Give your body. What does that mean? It is the everyday, in and out aspects of human life. It's life at its best. It's life at its hardest. It's life just mundane life, and it's the whole of you. It's your identity. Give that to God. It's your sexuality. Give that to God. It's your relationships, whether whole or broken. Give those to God. It's your career. Give that to God. It's your present, your past, your future. Here's the idea. Jesus Christ gave everything for us. Paul says, we do not hold everything anything back from God in our worship to him. It's everything or it's nothing. That's how it works. We belong to God, every part of us. And that this belonging to God, this worship to God, is to make its way, like to manifest itself in everyday living. Paul says that we are to present ourselves, here's here's a metaphor, as an instrument of righteousness or a tool of righteousness. You're somebody's tool. Might as well be God's tool, right? Tool for righteousness, tool to do what is right, an instrument to do what is right. So that's what Paul says that we are to do in light of what God has done for us. So then how do we do that? How do we present ourselves to God? And like I said, there are two aspects to this. There is the negative, and then there's also the positive. So negatively, it means that we are not conformed to this world. Now, when we think of this command, I imagine that many of us have a list of things that we believe are in Paul's imagination. Don't do this, this, or that. Stop doing these things. Start doing these things. General moral things that we know are unhealthy and probably the wrong way to live. Yeah, Paul does have some of those. He does. And we'll talk about those probably next week. But Paul's command is actually much deeper than that. This is about switching your allegiance. This is about uh, focusing your attention on a new thing, particularly the gospel. It's about a new object of worship. It's about getting a whole new of a whole new way of operating, a new MO that results in a new kind of humanity. Now, do not be conformed to this world. Most of us don't even realize how influenced we are by our surroundings. It's not even that we are taught to do certain things or think certain ways, though that is part of it. 
But it, it really isn't taught. I would say it's caught, right? The, the, the zeitgeist, uh, the, the, it's a cultural stream we're all swimming in. Uh, David Foster Wallace, in his commitment, commencement speech at Kenyon College, began with this parabolic story. I love this. I've told it before. He says, there are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, morning, boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? The point of the fish story is merely that the most obvious, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. Now, stated as an English sentence, of course, this is just a banal platitude. But the fact is that in the day-to-day trenches of adult existence, banal platitudes can have a life or death importance. He goes on, look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship, interesting choice of words, is not that they are evil or sinful. I would disagree, David. It is that they are unconscious. I agree. They are default settings. They are the kind of worship you just gradually slip into day after day, getting more and more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you are doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. This kind of freedom has much to recommend itself. But of course, there are all different kinds of freedom. David Foster Wallace is basically just going to do my whole sermon for me, but bear with me. Different kinds of freedom, and the kind that is most precious, you will not hear much talked about in the great outside world of winning and achieving and displaying. The really important kind of freedom involves attention and awareness and discipline and effort being able to truly care about other people and to sacrifice for them over and over in a myriad of petty, little, unsexy ways every day. That is real freedom, he says. The alternative is unconsciousness, the default setting, the rat race, the constant gnawing sense of having had and lost some infinite thing. I know this stuff probably doesn't sound fun and breezy or grandly inspirational, What it is, so far as I can see, is the truth. Dang. This guy was a prophet of our culture. You hear what he's saying, though? It's just, it's everywhere. We don't even realize that we're doing it. We're measuring our lives and our successes. Good day, bad day, good life, bad life, worthy, unworthy, honorable, shameful. We're measuring it according to a cultural measurement. We're measuring it according to the the values of this age. He says, you need to stop being conformed to this way of being. So the first step in what Paul is calling us to do is to recognize that we are automatically being formed to an image. It's not the image that God created us for. He created us in his image to bear his likeness, to bear his justice, to bear his mercy, to bear his meekness. You you hear what we sing this morning? Let your meekness give me boldness. Let your burden set me free. Oh, Emmanuel, my Savior, let your death be life for me. We are being reformed into the image of Jesus Christ. That's a cruciform life. A life that is marked by the cross. A life that is marked by bearing the burdens of others. A life that's marked by humility and meekness and patience and love and kindness and grace. Those are not things that you will get gold stars for at Apple. No one will give you, you know, like merits, you know, demerits for these things out in the real world. But God says in his kingdom, these righteous acts will shine forever and ever and ever in the age to come. These are the things that God values. 
He created us in his, in his image to bear his likeness and shine his character into the world. Now, what Paul's talking about here is this automatic confirmation to an image. This, this is worship language. Remember, he said the sacrifice, right, being put on the altar. Now, the idols we worship in our culture aren't usually images that we're physically bowing down to or making physical sacrifices to, or maybe we don't think so, and we don't use that language. I think we're just numb to it because it's so prevalent. We don't realize how much we sacrifice to career, to beauty, to power, to fame, to sex, to freedom, and to our own personal happiness each and every day through the apps and products we use to the goods we consume. We are being sold a version of the good life, a way of being human in the world, and we are sacrificing to get it. We're sacrificing to get it. We're laying things on the altar. For each of us, there are ways that we are worshiping other things than Jesus. And the evidence of our worship is that we sacrifice. We have laid things on the altar, so to speak. And usually, I will say this, the first thing to go is the priority of seeking the presence of God. That's how you can really know whether you are wholly worshiping Jesus Christ or not. Is God the number one priority of your life? As Carissa was exhorting us, earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Can, can you say those words of yourself? Is that your testimony? You earnestly seek God. That you believe that, that, again, that Jesus Christ is the culmination of the story of the world. That this is it. That this is the greatest thing that's ever happened to me, is that I have been born again, that I've been invited into the family of God. And now that I get to be a part of that kingdom and that family, like David says, oh, one thing have I desired of the Lord, and I earnestly will I seek after, to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life and to behold the beauty of the Lord. That's it. But usually, this is the first thing to go and evidence that we are sacrificing to some other way, some other uh, idol, some other God. What's the excuse? I'm just too busy. Doing what? The God of the universe has stepped down out of glory, lived a banal existence, given himself again and again and again to the needs of humanity, taken upon himself the suffering of the world, was crucified in shame, dead, buried, rose again, ascended to the Father, sent the Holy Spirit, and you're too busy. I'm too busy. You know, I'm busy. Doing what? Give me a freaking break. Like, we all say this dumb stuff, but like we need to stop and think about it. You're being conformed to the image of this world. That's what you're doing. So just say that. I'm busy being conformed to the image of this world. Dang, Char. Yeah, it's Paul, actually. Um, can't really take credit for this. Um, I'm too busy being conformed to the image of this world, doing what culture has taught me to, to, to do and to prioritize, to sacrifice. Why well, sacrifice good stewardship over my family? That's another thing that's evidence of what we're worshiping. When we sacrifice our families, we are not doing it for God. When we sacrifice our marriages, the health of our marriages, we're not doing that for God. That is the pull of the world. You are being conformed to the image of the world, and that is why you have laid your marriage on the sacrificial altar. or our finances, or hospitality and charity. I'm just too busy. No, you are just being conformed to the image of this world. That's what you're doing. We are killing ourselves with busyness. We haven't rested or vacationed in years. We are giving our most treasured things, our best years over to death, hoping it will produce life. We are being conformed to the world's image, and it shows up in our physical bodies and our priorities. 
N.T. Wright says this, when human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. Man, God has destined you for greatness, church. There's nobody in particular that I'm talking to this morning, by the way. So, like, if you're just like, he's looking at me. Usually, I'm just looking at that sign back there. So, um, no, but truly, God has destined us for greatness, to bear his image, to share his likeness, to join his mission to the world. And sadly, we're being conformed to the image of this world, and we're being dehumanized. Wright goes on to say, one of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship, not only to the object itself, but also outward into the world around you. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of it and increasingly treat others as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of it, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of it and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. See, this is what Paul is trying to tell us. And I know I'm, I sound harsh this morning, but this is, this is it, guys. There's only one of two options that are put before us. Be conformed or be transformed. There's no, no third option. Or maybe put another way, in view of God's mercy, you can either do nothing or you can begin to do something. God has done everything to redeem you in Christ Jesus. You can either do nothing and be conformed to this world, or you can, be, you can do something and be transformed. So just kind of to summarize this, how do we not be conformed? I think one major way to not be conformed is first by recognizing that it's happened and happening to all of us. It's the water we're swimming in. Secondly, I think that we as the church especially need to adopt a posture of suspicion when it comes to culture. Doesn't that sound great? (laughs) Right? Oh, good, right. A posture of suspicion. This sounds really good, Char. Super religious and stiff, holier than thou. I came from that, right? I'm not going back to that. Good, me neither, because that's not what I'm talking about. I mean that we live in the ordinary world, but we don't live naively. We live knowing that there is a power and presence at work in the world to draw our love, our affections, and our vision away from God and from Messiah, from God's way of flourishing in life. We need to be aware of that and to test all things, run them through the filter. Does this help or hinder me following in the way of Jesus? Does this pull away my allegiance to Jesus and to his kingdom? This filter, does this help or hinder You can use this filter, receive, redeem, reject. How many of you guys know that Sigmund Freud, does anybody know about this, that his nephew is the one that brought, like, marketing to America, and he used Freud's tactics that the Nazis also used for propaganda, right? So what, you know, like, Freud thought was neutral, the Nazis used for evil, and Americans used to just control the masses, through appealing to this version of the good life. The Nazis, it was the Third Reich, right? This millennial reign. For us, it's, it's freedom and flourishing according to individual definition of happiness, right? We are being conformed. Char, you sound like a lunatic. Well, whatever. But I, I, I exhort you, I encourage you, use a filter. Like we all, like how many of you have kids and use a filter on your internet? What's, what, like, how important is your life? What is your filter? you just taking everything, like, oh, Apple just brings out something new. Do you know that Steve Jobs and all these other guys that work in the, that tech world, that they wouldn't even let their kids have iPhones or iPads or any of this stuff? Why? Because it dehumanizes people. That's why. And us, we're like, oh, 
Praise God, we've got this new app we can use to get the gospel out. It's making us less human, actually. We should use a filter. We should think about this. What are the pros? What are the cons? Is this actually making me more in the image of God? Is this taking away from that image and that goal that God has called me to? Is this making me less human in my relationships with people? Is Facebook really helping me dialogue positively with people about what's going on in the world and how it can be fixed? Probably not. Probably not. As a follower of Jesus, there are going to be things in our culture and technology about our country that we must say no to in order to be loyal to Jesus and to our identity as the people of God, in order to be faithful to who God has redeemed us to be. So Paul tells us, do not be conformed. Wake up. You are being conformed. Put a filter on your life. Start thinking deeply about who you are becoming and who God has called you to be. Secondly, Paul says, be transformed. Be transformed. How do we do that? By renewing of your mind. So, neural pathways, addiction, slavery, and being stuck. You guys ready for this? No, I won't go too deep into this. Most studies say that by the age, I think, of 21, you are you. You're fixed. Your brain has stopped developing in, in those ways. You know, that's why they talk about, like, learning a, a language when you're young because your ability to comprehend and to retain. Is, your brain is much more spongier at that time. By the time you had, I think, about 20, 21, you're kind of fixed. You're kind of set who you are. Your brain has formed these neural pathways. And so the habits that you have formed over that time, you're kind of stuck. You are who you are. Unless, unless you can rewire your brain. And you can. It's difficult. But you can actually rewire your brain. And I think, that, I think that this is part of what Paul is talking about. Now, it's not just about thinking differently. That is part of it. It's thinking through the lens of the gospel or God's mercy, as Paul put it. But this is actually how it happens. When that neural pathway, that that thought, you know, it strikes, the electricity is going off in your brain, it's going to follow the pathway that it's always followed unless you decide to do something different. And you can. You can actually, you're you're a human being with free will, and this this amazing thing that even though we have these neural pathways, these super highways that we've carved into our brain, we can decide to do something different. So uh, let's, you know, your thought goes into your head, you know, you're turned on by something that you saw on the internet, whatever. so you're going to go and you're going to go look at porn, right? But you decide, you know what? I don't want to do this. I, I know that this is dehumanizing. To, I'm objectifying women. I'm doing all these terrible things. I'm not going to do that. You know what you've just done by not doing that, by calling up your friends, by going out, by contacting somebody, and doing something different, not only with your mind, but with your body? You have actually carved a new pathway in your brain. You have formed a whole new possibility. And a whole new possibility, a whole new way of life. Now, I use pornography because that's an easy one. But this would even have to do with if you are prone to stealing, if you are prone to criticism, if you're pr- whatever negative thing that you are prone to, if you're prone to selfishness. If you decide and then put action to that decision, you will actually form a new pathway in your brain and a new possibility. And I think, I truly believe that this is what Paul is talking about here. Because the renewal of our mind takes our bodies, putting feet to our faith, right? And of course, the motivating factor is always, since God in Christ has done this for me, I have been saved by a sheer act of God's grace, how should I now live? We break off old ways and we practice new ways with action, and, in we, and as we do that, new neural pathways are formed. We begin to operate as a whole new person. And of course, all of this is empowered by the Spirit of God with the knowledge of God's love toward us displayed in Christ. And of course, the knowledge of God's plan and future for us, where we're going, where we've come from, where we're going. But there is the possibility by the power of, your, of the Holy Spirit, you can change. You, be, you can become a whole new human being. By putting the knowledge of the gospel to action in your life. Now, this transformation process is not easy. 
It's not comfortable for us as humans. We always want processes and procedures to run smoothly and quickly. We hire people for this, right? Uh, We want to give it over with. We want a rule book that tells us exactly what to do and not to do. But God calls you and calls me to be an active participant in our sanctification. He's given us a spirit, his word. Jesus has walked the path before us as a model and guide. And he wants us now to figure it out, if you will. As messy as it is, sometimes there isn't this linear path. But I believe that this is what Paul is talking about in Philippians, where he tells the church, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. Discipline yourself for godliness. Train in the gymnasium of the Holy Spirit and of the way of Jesus, right? Paul is calling us. Transformation is about engaging in the process. Become an active agent. Do something by taking salvation and running it down the field. Transformation is about signing up and engaging and learning new habits, new rhythms, new patterns of what it means to be human. Here are a few ways in which we can do that. We can engage in the scriptures, and this is absolutely vital, right? Because it's in scripture where we are taught about the character of God, the way of Jesus, the story of God. And it's about learning to listen to the scripture, but also learning to obey the scripture. It's about taking in what scripture says and saying like, oh, my life does not match the way of Jesus. So we turn, that's confession. We repent, excuse me, repentance is turning and confession. And we start walking in this new way. Secondly, we engage in community. You need people to walk this out with you, right? People that will help you, but also people that you are called to help. A a, a community of people that you do this journey with. And also with that, engage in mission. Engage in good works, right? Put feet to your faith. Walk out the way of Jesus. Do good works at your job, at, you know, out with your friends, with your neighbors, in your home. Do these good works because they give opportunity for the message of the good news. And these are ways that we enter into the transformation process. We give our bodies in these practical, physical ways to God for his transformation. Another thing is you can get a rule of life. What's a rule of life? It's a means whereby, under God, we take responsibility for the pattern of our spiritual lives. It's a measure rather than a law. The word rule has, of course, bad connotations for Many Americans, right? Implying restrictions, limitations, legalistic attitudes. We hate that stuff. <laughs> but a rule is essentially about freedom, right? It's, it's like a, a guardrail. It's, it's a, um, a marker so you can know where you're at and where you're going. Again, putting everything through a filter. Does this express love of God? Does this help me love my neighbor? That'll bring transformation to your life. A pastor in Portland named John Mark Comer uses this as a rule of life. I I appreciate this. He says, what does it mean to follow or apprentice under Jesus? It means you live the way Jesus lived. You take his life and teachings as your template, your model, your pattern. The central question of our apprenticeship to Jesus is pretty straightforward. How would Jesus live if he were me? Jesus wasn't married. Jesus didn't have kids. Jesus didn't, you know, necessarily have like a boss that he had to go work for, co-workers, all that kind of stuff that we have. So then it's not just what would Jesus do? It's like, well, Jesus did. Like, the story's already written, you know? No, no, no. What would Jesus do if he were me? How would he live my life? And that's a great question to ask ourselves and a great way to take action in the transformation that God wants to do in our lives. Finally, the result. The result is this. By not being conformed, waking up, engaging in this process of transformation, taking action, putting action to your faith, you will be able to discover and discern what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. What's Paul saying? I believe that this is what Paul is saying. 
when we do this, when we engage this process, we reach a level of maturity, a measure of spiritual maturity and healthiness where you and I take the story of God forward. We write, as it were, the next chapters in the story of God and the world. That is an incredible privilege and an exciting adventure that God has called us to. And it doesn't matter if you live in Santa Rosa where you think things are mundane or you live in Timbuktu, right? Like wherever you are in the world, that you can be part of this story of the universe, that you can enter into the story of God and be an active participant in it. How incredible is that? That the God of the universe would invite us into the story. God, God's confident enough, right? If you will, to give his people the wheel. Now Judah is, how old right now? Nine, he's going to be 10 in January. And Judah hates this process that we're in right now. You know what Judah hates? He hates being nine. Judah wants to be 18. Judah wants to be 19. Judah wants to be 20. Judah wants to be 21 so we can have a beer together, right? He's always talking about this kind of stuff. And he keeps on saying this to me, Dad, I want to drive. I'm like, cool, we'll go to Driven Raceway, we'll go do that. No, I want to drive the car. And I'm like, yeah, cool, you're nine, so... But he's always, like, expert, like, he always wants to be there, not here. Always. Like, he loves art, and, and sometimes, though, just even the process for him is so difficult because he wants to be a master of his artistic talents. But he hates the process. It's difficult. It's messy. It's frustrating. We, we get all down on ourselves in the process. But this is how it is for every single human. But the joy, when we have reached a level in that process where we have come to maturity, I think about my own relationship with my dad. In the early years, my relationship with my parents was very, very difficult. I was a difficult child. One time, I threw a laundry basket, hurled it down the stairs at my mother's head. Yeah, that was me. And my dad beat the crap out of me for it, so that was fun. I tried to fight back. It didn't work too well. Um, we had a rough go for, for quite some time. And then we entered into kind of a, a, a more, I guess, discipleship process. But all this to say, there was a point in my life where I became a peer. And man, it was just the greatest. I, you, guys, you guys know, I talk about my dad all the time. I love my dad. I love my mom. My dad is like my best friend. He's the greatest. And I love being with him. And we don't have to do anything special. It's just being with him. But part of that, though, was reaching that peer level. Maturing in such a way that, you know, my dad could hand me the wheel, that he could trust me, and, and he didn't always have to be like, oh, 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 you know, tweaking this and figuring this out and doing all that. It's that peer level. I'll tell you, man, we entered a whole new level when I entered the ministry. My dad is a pastor. And man, the intimacy that we have, the understanding that we have because we are doing the same work. We are laborers in the same field. Guys, this is exactly what Paul is talking about here. I know that this process of sanctification is difficult, that it's frustrating, that you feel like you're going to struggle with these sins forever and ever and ever, but no, there is a level that we reach of maturity when we enter into the work of the Lord, where I would say, uh, you know, respecting and honoring God that he is separate, we become peers. We become not just recipients, but we become co-laborers with God, and we enter into a whole new depth and dynamic of our relationship with God. That's what God wants for us. He wants this incredible intimacy of being co-laborers in his mission. And this incredible thing is that at the end of time, when all things are said and done, that God will reward us for these works, that he will praise and honor us, that he will, will like, lift us up, It's incredible because we have shared in his work. 
So, church, I appeal to you by the mercy of God. According to God's riches of his grace in your life, what he has redeemed you from, what he's brought you from, what he has blessed you with, both spiritual and physical, that you give yourselves to God wholly and completely. That you stop letting the world form you into its image. You break that off, put on a filter, and start being transformed, enter into the process so that you can run the ball down the field, so that you can take the wheel, so that you can write the next pages of the story of God and enter into the next phases of this incredible adventure with God. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would do this with us. Lord, uh, it's like Lewis said, Lord, we are often so easily pleased so easily, quickly satisfied with our conditions. And we think, Lord, that this is what you want for us. Lord, but you offer us so much more. Paul talks about faith, hope, and love. Talks about love enduring it, going on and on and on, Lord. But following you, there will always be so much more to hope for. Lord, there will be so much more to believe in and trust you with, God. And so we pray, Lord, that we would engage in that adventure with you. Lord, to see your kingdom brought here in Santa Rosa, to see your will be done in our city as it is in heaven. Lord, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would grab hold of our hearts so that we would take our faith We would take our salvation and we would run it up the field. Lord, we would continue the work with you, engaging, Lord, in the gospel. Lord, making your life known, Lord, both in word and deed. Lord, help us, Lord. And help us, Lord, to help one another in this. Lord, this is not just about us individually, but it is about us corporately spurring one another on towards love and good works. Help us to do that, Lord. 